Well, as I say, um, good morning. It's probably evident to all of you, you've astutely deduced that I'm not British. And um, I'm here after uh, years of ministry in the United States, uh, being graciously offered the opportunity to, um, to serve here in this church, to learn British culture, uh, for our family to adjust to uh, life here as God has called us to serve long-term through another ministry called the Alliance for Transatlantic uh, Theological Training. And so I'm here this morning as a part of the staff team uh, to have an opportunity to open God's Word to you. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm excited also this morning that I'm doing that uh, on the occasion of Joe's baptism, which was uh, so exciting and wonderful to um, be able to listen in as somewhat of an outsider and to, to watch as things um, take, uh, take place in the life of this church. And um, as we look at God's Word this morning, the passage we're going to be looking at in John chapter 3, um, I couldn't help but think of it as an occasion for us to eavesdrop in on a conversation. And before we look at that conversation this morning, it's, it's interesting how much we've grown accustomed to being eavesdropped upon um, in modern society. Um, I served in a church in Wisconsin uh, for the last 10 years, and on one occasion on a Wednesday night in a Bible study, we were having a very serious conversation about the Holy Spirit. And someone was very meaningfully sharing about the ministry of the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, a topic which came up on a Sunday night uh, several weeks back here at, at the church. And as we finished and as they shared so meaningfully, all of a sudden a voice came from someone's back pocket that said, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about that. And so little did we know that Siri was in that Bible study with us. And we've become so accustomed to smart devices everywhere and they're listening to us oftentimes with hilarious, um, but also sometimes a little disconcerting um, effect. But regardless, tech companies have realized the value of listening in on us, whether that's listening and tracking our movements or perhaps even listening in to our conversations. They've learned how to monetize that and to use that. And so in John chapter 3, we're given the priceless opportunity of listening into a conversation of even greater and enormous consequence, through which there is much to be gained, regardless if you're someone who is here, um, who's just curious about Jesus, but is unconvinced, like Nicodemus. Perhaps you come to him this morning with questions. But there is also value, and to be honest, this has been my concern for the vast majority with us, of the fact that we are very familiar with this passage and that we fail to grasp the gravity of actually what it is saying. My prayer has been that wherever we fall on the spectrum of faith this morning, that we would finish this morning with a fresh appreciation and full appreciation for what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And let us always keep in mind that what John is writing, he is writing in, in light of his intended purpose that he's told us that we've talked about here on Sundays before, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so that's something significant to talk about this morning, and one that I must confess I need God's help uh, to convey properly. So would you just join me in prayer briefly as we pray and ask his help. Lord, you know that the cry of my heart is that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
Lord Jesus, this morning, would you give us eyes, would you open our eyes to the truth of what you share, shared with Nicodemus long ago, whether it is with eyes for the first time, or we've heard this many times, may you speak to our hearts and may we have a full appreciation of it, and may you challenge us to respond accordingly. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So what is it that we gain by listening into this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus? If tech companies gain by listening into our conversations, what do we gain by listening into this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus? And it'll just be very simply put, there's several things that we see, and the first one is this. We learn what must be true of anyone to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus made that fact very clear, and before we get into the conversation, perhaps it would be helpful for us to remember or to think about what did it actually mean to enter God's kingdom from Nicodemus's perspective, because clearly his understanding would have been shaped by the Old Testament passages pointing to a coming reign of God on the earth that would be administered over by his anointed one, the Messiah. Perhaps over simply put, the Messiah was to usher in a golden age, if you will, of God's rule on the earth that would entail a complete victory over all that would be contrary to that rule. And what's significant is that Nicodemus and his contemporaries, being ethnically Jewish and observant in that regard, would have fully anticipated to be a part of God's kingdom and experience the personal blessing from God's future rule. And the conversation that we get to listen in on between Jesus and Nicodemus revolves around this point of entering into God's kingdom. And John wants us, I think, right off the bat to see some very significant things about Nicodemus. First, he was a respected religious figure who held a position of significant authority and influence as a member of the Jewish ruling council. That he referred to him as Israel's teacher, indicating his extensive knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures and perhaps, even just perhaps, a little bit of celebrity status in communicating them. It could have been a nickname, the teacher of Israel, sort of like the staff here might be the teachers of Chesington, or is this some sort of title? But he also demonstrates a measure of humility and open-mindedness by even coming to Jesus and recognizing him as a teacher who has come from God. He concluded that God must be with Jesus in some way by virtue of the things that he was seeing uh, God do through Jesus. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus's polite religious diplomacy, if you will, is rather worth examining. And hopefully I can get away with this as an outsider, as an American observing the Brexit process, or process, shall I say, I'm sorry. That Nicodemus comes somewhat more like Theresa May, and dare I say that Jesus responds at, at quick brush more like Boris Johnson. And some of you in the, have, in the back who are listening, did he just say Boris is like Jesus? No, it's not what I said. But if you listen to Jesus, the manner of his speech comes across much more direct and abrupt. Here Nicodemus comes rather politely through the side door, and Jesus pushes the front door open, and he says, I tell you the truth, or very truly I tell you. A formula he uses several times as we read through the passage, three times in fact, and there's significance in the number three of completeness. That Jesus speaks here as one with inherent authority regarding the things he's going to talk to Nicodemus about. He doesn't say it is written. He says, 
I am telling you this. And the substance of what is said regarding the kingdom of God, when he boldly tells him, as Nicodemus says, these are the things we're seeing in you. You're a teacher sent from God. We see this. And Jesus says, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Again, he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and of spirit. You must be born again. And that you there is plural. That is Nicodemus has come and saying, we know this and we've seen this. Jesus is saying, well, all of you who are saying that, be not surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. And I think Jesus' response was obviously not quite what Nicodemus was expecting when he said essentially, how can a man or how can a person be born again? How can they come out of their mother's womb a second time? But it should not have taken him by surprise, nor if you have been studying along with us on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of John, it should not take us by surprise either. The broader context of John chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus knew the true condition of, of human hearts and the authenticity of a faith response to him. And in light of that, it highlights a a specific detail of John's recollection of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. If you read John's gospel thoroughly, you'll soon discover he has an affinity for multiple layers of meaning in, in some terms. And it's true that it could have simply been a passing reference to the time of day. It was nighttime. It's true that it could have simply been the most conducive and convenient time to carry on a conversation between these two men. But I think it is quite likely that John, as he reflected and wrote about this incident, could not help but see in that particular detail an ironic connection to the condition of Nicodemus as he came to Jesus. He was a man who, by all measures, had an exposure to the light of Scripture that was greater than most, when compared to other human beings, had likely lived a commendable, moral, and a sincere, religiously observant life. Yet just like the darkness with which he was coming to Jesus, he was in the dark spiritually. Contrast this to Jesus, again, in the light of John's gospel, who John had already written as the true light that was coming into the world that gives light to every man. So similarly, as we continue out the broader context of John's gospel, but also all of Scripture, the concept of spiritual rebirth and renewal, as we saw in in the baptism this morning of Joe, in relation to, to God's kingdom, is not only found earlier in John's gospel, but all of Scripture. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it told us that as many as received Jesus, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become Children of God, children born according to a birth that comes from God. But it was clear when Jesus was saying, born of the water and of spirit, he was referencing something that's grounded in the Old Testament passage of Ezekiel chapter 36, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow 
my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus said it should not come as a, have come as a surprise to Nicodemus, nor should it to us if we know the, the testimony of God's word. The testimony of God's word in the Old Testament and now via the word made flesh in Jesus is that all people, including someone like Nicodemus, that all people are in spiritual darkness due to sin and are in need of a cleansing and the bestowing of life through the Spirit of God. And it is something that only God can bring about. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit to spirit. And Jesus compared this work of the Holy Spirit in bringing this new birth as he carries on this conversation with Nicodemus to like the blowing of the wind, which is something that never happens along the coast of the British Isles, is it? Several years ago, I was standing by a Coast Guard station in Cornwall and I thought I was going to be lifted off the cliffs and thrown into the sea. The wind blows and I wasn't thinking in that moment, I believe this wind came somewhere from Greenland. Or perhaps the South Atlantic, I just knew it hit me at that moment and had a profound effect on my body. Nor was I thinking this is going to end somewhere in central London or somewhere up north in Scotland or Liverpool. I simply saw it. And we may not have total understanding over to control the source of the movements of the wind, but we can perceive its effects. And Jesus' point here as he talks to Nicodemus is that there may be a, dis a degree of mystery when it comes to the new birth from a human perspective. But its reality is undeniable. That it's not something we can conjure up by human effort, attain, but we can clearly see its power. And in this first movement of the conversation, Jesus is unequivocal on this point. As we gain from listening in on the conversation, he says quite clearly, no one can enter the kingdom of God apart from a new birth given by God's Spirit. I sometimes wish I had the, con the opportunity to listen in on other conversations, not just this one. And don't worry, I don't walk around the church trying to listen to your conversations. I, I don't mean that. But I am a student of history. And there are many times that I would have loved to have sat in a room, uh, the expression being, you know, a fly on the wall, if you will, to certain conversations. And one in which I thought of recently in light of this um, is one that I remember hearing about of a private audience between Sir Winston Churchill and Billy Graham. We went to Winston Churchill's home this last week, and as we walked around his home, I know this conversation I think took place on Downing Street, but um, I want to relate it to you. So Churchill invited him in for this private meeting, and he says, I'll tell you, Churchill said, I see no hope for the world. I'm a man without hope. Do you have any real hope? To which Graham asked, are you without hope for your own soul's salvation? Frankly, I think about that a great deal, was Churchill's reply. Telling the story later, Graham said, I had my New Testament with me. Knowing that we had but a few minutes left, I immediately explained the way of salvation. I watched carefully for signs of irritation or offense, but he seemed receptive, if not enthusiastic. I also talked about God's plan for the future, including the return of Christ. His eyes seemed to light up at the prospect. I love this part. When the Duke of Windsor arrived for lunch, Churchill growled, let him wait, and told Graham to keep going. He went on for another 15 minutes and then prayed for the great difficulties Churchill faced every day, 
He also affirmed that God was the only hope for the world and for us individually. Churchill thanked Billy, and as they shook hands, he asked that the conversation be kept private. So Graham didn't tell the story until Churchill passed away. I haven't been able to confirm this, but I have heard it said that Churchill's response to the new birth was something of the effect, it's too late for me for that. And as we listen to Jesus' words this morning when he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I think we need to be reminded and know this morning that no one is beyond the need for, but also the reach of the new birth. Nicodemus was one who was not exempt on the basis of religious achievement or moral credit, but nor is anyone excluded on the basis of a lack thereof. And I want you to know that you would neither let self-sufficiency nor self-condemnation keep you from becoming a part of God's kingdom by being born again through His Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God except or apart from a new birth by His Spirit. But in this conversation, we also see how God even made spiritual rebirth possible for anyone. Now, at this point of the conversation, maybe you would agree with me that I think Nicodemus would have concluded that he was getting far more than he bargained for. That he came thinking he was in the driver's seat as a position of authority, interviewing some new upstart religious teacher. Now he finds himself back on his heels. Now Nicodemus's question, as we've heard already several times, is how can this be? How can these things be? And that either reveals he is either unwilling or unable, or I think more likely unwilling to accept what Jesus is saying because it likely ran contrary to everything Nicodemus had invested in and taught to others regarding entering into God's kingdom. To honor God, to be obedient to Him, to be religiously observant. Nicodemus seems to have an illability or an unwillingness to grasp a condition for entrance into God's kingdom that seems to have negated all human contribution to the equation. And Jesus' response in him as we go further in this conversation hints that this resistance um, has a source. And he turns the conversation to Nicodemus' failure to recognize who Jesus really is. If you look at verse 10, Jesus said to him, You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? D.A. Carson has said, It's like he's saying, You are the Reverend Professor Doctor and you do not understand what I'm talking to you about. Contrary to how Nicodemus approached him, Jesus is not merely a religious teacher through whom God was at work. We know as readers of John's Gospel that he is God himself. He is the the Word who became flesh, having the authority in himself to proclaim the requirements for entrance into God's kingdom. But it's at this point that Nicodemus, along with all the others who were included in his we as he came to approach Jesus, it's at this point that they are refusing to accept who Jesus is and more specifically what he is saying about the new birth. In verse 12, when Jesus says, I have spoken to you of of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak of, of heavenly things? 
Verse 11, Jesus says, We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. It's not um, an inability to grasp it. It's an unwillingness to embrace it. And he says, If you cannot grasp the most fundamental question of how someone even enters the kingdom of God, earthly things, where that takes place, how will you even begin to appreciate what it really means to live in God's kingdom when it comes in all its fullness? The flow of the conversation, if it has left or introduced any doubt in Nicodemus' mind, changes quickly in verse 13 when Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus was just saying, I testify to what I know. And how does he know it? Because he is the one who has come from heaven. And he uses a specific title saying the Son of Man. It's one that is based, again, in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, we find it for the first time. A book where there's a series of visions all relating to the coming of God's kingdom. And in one of those, kingdom, in one of those visions, there is a reference to one like the Son of Man whose origins are from heaven. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, for one, do not think the impact of this reference to the Son of Man would have been lost on Nicodemus. I think he was quite aware what Jesus was saying, that in asserting his identity as the Son of Man, he was saying that he was the one endowed with all authority in terms of any matter relating to God's kingdom, including entrance into it. But again, even knowing all that, how is this new birth going to happen? How can it even take place? And Jesus, once again, as we come to verse 15, employs another reference to the Old Testament that I won't turn to, but I want to let you know what it is. When he says in in verse 14, "...just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert..." So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. He's referencing an account from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, which I'll summarize for the sake of time quickly, but I encourage you to go and read it later. After experiencing God's power in delivering them uh, through the plagues in Egypt and taking them through the Red Sea, The gracious provision of manna to sustain them. The Israelites demonstrate the worst level of ingratitude in speaking and complaining against God. And in response, God sent venomous snakes into the Israelite camp. And it is rather fitting that the poison of their lips and in their hearts that was circulating in the camp was matched by the poison inflicted on them via the serpents. And there comes a point where they repent and they cry out for deliverance and God made the most gracious and simple provision for them by having Moses make a bronze serpent, which when one was bitten, they could look to and they could live. Jesus said the Son of Man would function like that 
bronze serpent, that bronze snake, though in this case the benefit received would be, would be far greater. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like the serpent was lifted up. But it was a clear foreshadowing, if you know the life of Christ, of what ultimately awaited Jesus in making spiritual rebirth possible. There's that lifted up has a dual meaning, once again, just like the darkness. But to lift something up was to exalt it. But in this case, it was also referring to the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. And the cross would be where Jesus would suffer as a substitute for our sin. And in so doing, he would be exalted for his greatest hour of suffering. His hour of greatest suffering and humiliation was also his greatest glory. Again, the reference in Nicodemus's mind probably would have gone to the book of Isaiah. I got it right, the book of Isaiah. You didn't even catch that. That was bilingual for me here. Okay. Um, but there's a clear connection to Isaiah 52 and 53 with the suffering servant because there the prophet wrote, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And then as you get to chapter 53 where he says that, um, that he, the Lord made him sin on our behalf and that he, he suffered for us. Portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Similar to the bronze serpent, it is the provision of God through the death of Jesus on the cross that spiritual rebirth can be made possible. And I wonder if in the years ahead, the time ahead when Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, if these words came back to him, if the words of the prophet came back to him, yet eternal life comes through the one who was lifted up. Everyone who believes in him, Jesus said, would have eternal life. That he says to believe, just like the serpent was, to look at the serpent, that we not overcomplicate faith, to simply look in faith, to have a conviction of one's need and a confidence in the remedy that God has provided. Interestingly, they had to look to that bronze snake that was set up in the midst of their camp. The pole was there. You could have been camped out right next to the pole, yet still, one simply had to look. To enter into eternal life, entrance into the kingdom, to have eternal life. That the equating of these things, it's the life of the kingdom. That when we think of eternal life, it's not just a life that goes on and on and on into eternity. Yes, there's a future rule of God that is coming that will extend into eternity. If we respond in faith to Jesus and what God has done for us on the cross, we will be blessed to be uh, participants in. But that life of the kingdom can be experienced in some measure now through faith in Jesus. It is why Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's broken in on human existence and we can experience a portion of it now. And no one can enter that kingdom apart from a spiritual new birth by God's spirit as well that that spiritual rebirth is only possible on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. So just in conclusion, as we bring this down to the end, as we get to John 3.16, that ever so familiar verse, I know it's probably in red in your Bible, but it's likely that this is not Jesus speaking, but John speaking upon what just happened. 
I know that may shock some of you that the scriptures weren't written in red originally. There wasn't even quotation marks or punctuation as we think about it in Greek. But it, the style changes and it becomes third person and it's a reflection back. And I think John wants the reader of his gospel to not fail to recognize and grasp the significance of what they just be given an opportunity to listen in on. The question we are meant to ask as we read this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved is to ask this very basic question. Is what more could anyone expect God to do? That God responded to human sin with an intensity of love and the giving of his son with the intention not of condemning the world but of the world having salvation and life through him. Yes, he demands new birth, but then at great cost to himself, at the cross, Jesus, make, Jesus makes it possible for anyone to experience it through the simplest of means. Faith. Looking to him. And when he says, whoever, everyone, anyone, no matter what translation of the Bible you are using this morning, it will have something to that effect, and it makes it patently clear. God has made it simply through faith, though at great cost to himself. And as we continue to read it and come to the end, there's another implicit question, but I'll get to that in just a moment. He says, whoever believes in him, in verse 18, is not condemned. But whoever does, does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. What if one refuses what God has so generously provided? Knowing what God has done in sending his son and yet refusing to believe is a bit of a self-condemning response. Why would anyone refuse so great a love and generous offer of life? By way of explanation, John says, a preference for the darkness over the light. The light of the gospel. Darkness and light are themes that come out all throughout John. And to come into that light for Nicodemus and for us is uncomfortable and humbling as it exposes the true nature of who we are and the things we've done, the shame, the conviction. And many would rather cling to their pride or position or simply the sin they enjoy than by faith come into the light of Christ. We've learned this morning of what it means, what it entails, what is required to enter into God's kingdom. It's spiritual birth, and God, at great cost to himself through his Son, made that birth possible for anyone and everyone. But these last few verses of John make it clear. What will your response be? Whether and for the first time, you need to look in faith to Jesus. I also thought this week of Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers near here in London, contemporary of D.L. Moody, 
And he speaks in his own testimony, similar to Joe's, as he was baptized, of how he came to faith, and it came because of a snowstorm. He got redirected into a primitive Methodist church where he said they sang so loudly, one made major headache. And as he sat there, the, the preacher for the morning couldn't make it, and so a layman gave, uh, came up to the, the podium, the lectern, and he read this verse from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. And in that moment, as he said, he kind of just went over that for 10 minutes on end until he got to the end of his tether. He said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know, what, I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. At that moment, I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. He was born again. And perhaps that is your need this morning as well. That perhaps for the first time, you need to respond in faith to Jesus. It's not religious observance. It's not moral rectitude. It's not joining a church. It's a response to God through Jesus Christ, of faith and what he's done for us on the cross. It's a relationship with him. And you can do that this morning. You can find someone here. If you've come as someone curious about Jesus but unconvinced, do not leave here without responding to him in faith. But many of us in the room have responded to him, and I think we should continue in the response we've already had this morning. When we sang about the light of the world who's come down into darkness and opened our eyes that we might see that we would come and bow down and worship him. That we would say with Peter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We need to be born again to see God's kingdom and God in his grace has made that possible through his son. We should celebrate that and we should respond in that in worship Maybe in the spirit that Spurgeon said of those primitive Methodists who sang so loudly that it made people's heads hurt. But we're going to sing in just a moment. And I pray that this knowledge, again, reminder of what God has done for us in Christ would fuel our worship of him through song. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the great love you've shown for us in Christ. Thank you that you spared no cost that you responded in such intensity of love that anyone and everyone who would come into the light of who Jesus is could find life, new birth. Jesus, I pray that neither self-condemnation nor self-sufficiency would keep anyone from coming to you this morning. We pray that the familiarity of this passage would not cause us to pass by it with a sense 
of knowing it. But with fresh eyes, may we respond in a fresh sense of the wonder of who you are and all you've done for us in Christ. For it's in your name that we ask it and for your glory. Amen.